Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, everything you could possibly think of, everything you could dream of, everything you could imagine has its own history, like tanks, foreheads and tape. (laughs) Simply everything has its own history, such as drapes, capes and apes, landscapes, scrapes and grapes. I think we should do something all about the history of wine or all about the history of scrapes, which actually is all about the history of accidents. It's scraping skin off yourself. Oh, horrid. We will, however, be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of patience, which you should know about if you'd re- listened to our last two episodes, is in fact all about the history from below. It's about smells and noises. It's about introspection. It's about Samuel Pepys, Charles Darwin, architecture. And of course, most importantly, it's about Dr. Chapman's spinal ice bags. <laughs> you know that? Or that the history of chairs is all about social control in Tudor England. It's about thrones, witches' interrogation stools, ducking stools. Brilliant. This was the chapter that we wrote specially for our little book on the history of the Tudors, the unexpected history of the Tudors. (laughs) If you haven't, I suppose regular listeners must have worked out at some point, that I don't write these introductions and James does. And I think it's my favourite bit of the entire podcast. Can we do the history of foreheads, please, very soon? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> foreheads? Yeah, you said uh, tanks, foreheads and tape are in the... Uh, oh, are. brilliant. Yes, yes. You'd even forgotten that you'd come up with that. Well, I, I, I do it in a whiz of brilliance. <laughs> And then forget it immediately afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's do that. Um, Let me just say, here we are. Well, uh, the man not sitting opposite me, we're we're still not recording together, which is a great shame. But we've worked out how to do it on Zoom, finally. Uh, If history was a pot of the darkest ink in which brewed the most wondrous stories, this man would be the pen, (laughs) the means by which those stories could be told by human hand, the conduit of the past in the present, the diarist of antiquity. It's Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. And the man not sitting opposite me. Uh, Because, as he said, we're social distancing in these grim, grim days of lockdown. Well, let's just say that if he were an ink pen manufacturer, he'd only be George Safford Parker himself, (laughs) the founder of the Holland Gold Pen Company. Uh, And... um, he, who received the first patent for a fountain pen in 1889. Mm. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. How do you like that, Sam, being George Safford Parker? I like it. I like it a lot. I like Parker the, pens. The inventor of the first fountain pen. Yeah. 
This week, if you haven't worked it out yet, I bet you have, we are doing the history of ink. And I feel like I've uh, walked into a bit of a trap here because James is a professor of almost everything. But one of the things that he is mostly a professor of is things to do with writing and pens and paper and ink. So I suspect that you know a great deal more about this than I do. However, I have discovered some wonderful, wonderful things which I'm very excited about, um, which I'm looking forward to share. So uh, I'm going to pass the baton over to you, James, about why we're doing a history of ink to start with and then how we might go about thinking about it. Well, I think you've described me as a professor of ink studies, <laughs> which is more or less which is more or less what I what I am in a in a sort of roundabout way. Uh, I've worked for the last oh gosh twenty five years on manuscript letters uh, and other things. Uh, latterly, working on gloves, as those of you who listen to the podcast know. But I've basically worked on letters and letter writing, which has meant that I've become something of an anorak in terms of in terms of things like ink handwriting, pens, tools, all of those kinds of things. And I've written a big book a few years ago called The Material Letter, uh, which I was trawling through uh, over the last couple of days for references to ink. And they are myriad. And I think one of the reasons that we're thinking about ink is because it not only has a fascinating history, but also that it is related to some of the big issues in the past. And I think ink itself, when we think about ink, um, ink has an extraordinary history. Um, and it's something that you find throughout history, whether you think about um, whether you think about cave paintings with Neolithic caves with ink put on there, or whether we think about uh, medieval manuscripts or ancient papyri where ink has been put on it or whether we move through into uh, the period of the printing press and a different kind of ink being produced that actually produces print or uh, the way in which we think about ink today and we think about the ubiquity of personal printers uh, and the inkjet. Uh, ink has an extraordinary varied history that is culturally different, that is geographically different. Um, and I think that's a really interesting history to chart. Um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about also was um, voting ink. Uh, since we are, we're recording this in the aftermath of the US presidential election in 2020, when, when Joe Biden and Kamala Harris uh, have taken uh, the presidency and the vice presidency at a time when Trump is still out denying the vote and he's claiming about voter fraud and, and he's going to take it to the Supreme Court and blah, 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 blah. And what's fascinating is the way in which other countries around the world have dealt with this idea of voter fraud. And one of the things that they have come up with is something called voting ink. And this happens in parts of the world where people are less literate, where people have less easy access to personal forms of identification. Uh, so one of the things in, in, in America, you turn up and you have to produce some ID. But in other countries um, where there are you know, vast sort of populations and people don't have access to that kind of personal identification, one of the things that the voting officials do, who are controlling the voting, is that they stain people's um, thumbprint with uh, indelible ink uh, so that they can be proved 
to have voted. Uh, and this is this was something that was invented in 1962 in Delhi, so in in India, uh, in the National Physical Laboratory there, and it was supposed to stop or combat voter fraud. And the ink is made with silver nitrate, which is a kind of thing that's used in early photography. And when you put it onto the, when it's applied onto the finger, it reacts with the salt present in the human skin and it then can't be washed off. Uh, and it lasts for several days, sometimes even months. Uh, and it's literally inked onto the skin. And the only way it comes off is when the skin cells die and they and they fall off. Now, it's been used in various countries, in India, in Afghanistan, in Ghana, in Iraq. And there's a famous episode in 2004 elections in Afghanistan when the election officials handed out uh, little pens uh, for people to use so that they could mark themselves with this with this ink. Uh, the problem was that the ink in it wasn't quite as indelible as they wanted it to be. Um, and But nonetheless, it is still a brilliant way of defending against electoral, electoral fraud. Um, so it's a symbol, or it's a symbol of democracy, I suppose. So there we are. That's a little starter for 10 on yeah. ink. I will bore you in a sort of anoraki way with 16th century uh, <coughs> pounce and how you make, um, how you make, um, ink applied to paper. I think that's one of the interesting things about ink. When you think about ink, it's two parts. It's not only the ink itself, uh, and the production of that, which varies over time, and you can think about Chinese ink, you can think about Mayan ink, you can think about iron gall ink, you can think about printer's ink, um, but also it's the way in which it is, the way in which it is taken by the surface onto which it's applied, whether that be paper, whether it be papyri, whether it be surfaces like pottery, whether it be walls. So there's a real interesting history of this that varies across time and varies across cultures. No one ink is the same across across periods. Yeah, it was interesting what you were saying about it um, going onto surfaces. Yes. Um, the, the voting ink is, you know, you're going onto skin. And one of the most distinctive things about people using voting ink are the, the, those images of people coming out of elections proudly raising up their finger, which shows to have some ink painted on the nail or painted on the finger. Um, and I, just looking at this list, I, I'm really interested in the way the world is kind of divided up into those uh, those countries that use or have used voting ink on their fingers and those that don't, that use these um, uh, different systems such as we're seeing in America. So um, you, you listed a few of them, James, but this is this is a full list of countries that have used election ink. Afghanistan, Albania, the Bahamas, that's an interesting one. Algeria, Dominica, Egypt, Guatemala, India, Indonesia, Iraq, Pakistan, Lebanon, Libya, Malaysia, Maldives, Myanmar, Nepal, Nicaragua, Peru, Philippines, St. Kitts and Nevis, South Africa, Sri Lanka, Sudan, Syria, Tunisia, Turkey and Venezuela. So those are all countries in which you'll have this uh, distinctive behaviour of dipping your finger. I, I just Does anything leap out at you there, James, from that list of list of places? Or do you think I mean, it's, it is it's simply down to um, large bodies of people just sort of coping with with uh, the demands of elections in different ways? I think it's I, I think part of it is probably due to people not having 
the personal identification yeah, yeah, yeah. as freely. I also think with many of those countries, you're looking at you're looking at countries that are often introducing uh, voting uh, for the first time, uh, or where voting is quite contested, where you've had authoritarian regimes or dictatorships, and what you're trying to do is to introduce a democratic system and make sure that it is foolproof, and you know and in many of those countries, I imagine you would have problems with paper systems, uh, people, you know, doubling up on ballots, people being paid to vote in particular ways, um, people voting, you know, multiple times. And so having a really simple, foolproof way of ensuring a democratic vote, you know, this is probably one of the sort of easiest ways to do it, one of the most effective ways to do it. Yeah, and, and it's interesting as, as well. I've just uh, noticed that there are some examples where, but basically, if you voted, there's physical proof that you've carried that vote, which can be dangerous. It can become a problem. So in 2008, in the Zimbabwean presidential election, people who had not voted were, were found to have been attacked, were beaten by government-sponsored mobs who wanted that vote in. Um, and similarly, in 2010, in Afghanistan, you've got um, the Taliban is threatening to cut off anybody's finger um, who was marked with indelible ink. So get the opposite side of that, but threatening people who could, had proven that they had voted, that they'd taken part in democracy. Interesting stuff. Very interesting. Interesting stuff. I'm going to... Um, <clears throat> uh, I, I, I love this. I, I'm so excited about talking to you about this. Uh did you know, James, <laughs> that there is uh, there's a historiography? You probably didn't know. There's a historiography of the history of ink. So, so try and get your heads around this. The history of the history of ink has a history. <laughs> so there you go. Um, I found this amazing book. It's 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 my new favourite book. It's called The History of Ink, including its etymology, chemistry, and bibliography. It was published. Oh, love it! It's published in 1860 in New York by Thaddeus Davids. And company, and it's truly, truly magnificent. This um, just just tell you who Thaddeus Davids was. So he was born in eighteen ten, died in eighteen ninety four. Extremely successful businessman who made an, an absolute fortune um, creating ink. Uh, really interesting. He he moved to um, New York at the age of thirteen. Went to go and work. Uh, in the employee of an ink manufacturer who died and left the entire company to Thaddeus, who turned it, he grew it and grew it and grew it and um, made it a a huge fortune. And I think it looks like one of the things he did was to to really explore his own interest in the history of ink and maybe his own location in that history, knowing just how important his company was and was going to be and probably how he believed it was always going to be if he was writing in the 1860s. We just describe this book a bit, if I can. Um, it's got the most unbelievably beautiful frontispiece. Each word, so the, the history of ink, is heavily... Calligraphed is that a word, James? It has been done in calligraphy, like yes. a, an illuminated manuscript. There are kind of gold tassels at the top, a bit like a theatre stage is the only way I could describe it. It's a masterpiece of design, um, and, and such a, a brilliant example of form matching content. If you know what I mean, it's not just the the title page, but also the the pages of the book itself are beautifully adorned in wonderful writing. 
multitude of different typefaces and handwriting. Um, the word the here on the title page is a kind of dark scarlet with gold around the edges. The word history itself, uh, it's a bit like a trick of the eye. You can't quite read it if you look at it. But if you stand away and let your eyes swim, you can make out history. Um, really like one of those heavily um, uh, illustrated, elaborate medieval manuscripts. And then that's in a kind of red as well, not as pinky as the word the. And then the final word, the history of ink. Ink is in this wonderful dark blue outlined in a lighter blue and all decorated in swirly gold. And underneath it, this scroll saying, uh, made by Thaddeus Davids and company. Um, and so this tells you a little bit about the history of the ink. And it's quite extraordinary because it's got a bit, little, little bit of a surprise at the back. Um, let me just read out what he was trying to do here. Ink is history in the common acceptation of the word. For what is generally denominated history is ink diffused on paper in certain definite lines. Yet ink has no history written or composed hitherto. In view of this deficiency, which betrays a singular negligence on the part of historians and all literary men, and a thoughtless ingratitude to this indispensable means of accomplishing and preserving their work, we propose to supply the desideratum by furnishing on these little pages what is indicated by the above title, in the fullest sense and widest scope of the term, including its etymology, its chemistry and all that can be suggested and justified by the title or fairly demanded under it or claim from it. A, a, a wonderful introduction. Now, this this book, he, it's got it's got something at the back. I'm just down here to flick through and find this. Um, that 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 opening there was uh, was beautifully. Um... Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Prosaically flatulent in a in a sort of very Victorian way. Yeah, yeah. It, you could you could write several essays just on that introduction, couldn't you? Yes. He, there's a great deal he's picking up on there. A, it's a him, and he's he's, he's writing as a man to other men. Um, he's he's kind of being rude about the history discipline, not rude, but sort of observant about what they focus on, which I think is really interesting. Um, and at the back, this is my favourite bit. Uh, or oh, James, you'd like this book. Um, uh, there is a close facsimile of a ink experiment. And what he's done is he's written the names of various inks out. And then he's 
exposed it to the sun and the rain for five months to test their staying power. So you've got this page which shows the names of various inks in different faded... Some are bolder, some are faded because they've, they've become more damaged by, by the wind and the rain. So at the top you've got Blackwood's Black Ink, David's and Co.'s Limpid Writing Fluid. Remember, this book is written by Thaddeus David. Yeah, Unsurprisingly, that is the most bold. Harrison's <laughs> Columbian Ink, Steel Pen Ink, Thaddeus David's again, uh, Maynard and Noyes Black Writing Ink. And he says underneath, written August the 14th, 1855, to test permanence by long exposure to sun and rain. Um, and it's signed James R. Chilton, who is the chemist of Thaddeus David's. Um, then underneath, the above is a close facsimile of a paper upon which I wrote with several types of ink. And it appeared after being exposed and how it appeared after it being exposed to weather for five months. Uh, signed March 15th, 1856. So no surprise there that Thaddeus Davis and Co.'s limpid writing fluid uh, <laughs> is the one that comes out the most. Now, I I need to read you the conclusion because it's absolutely extraordinary, okay? <laughs> All right, this is a roller coaster. Bear with me. It starts how you might expect, but then it does not. It goes somewhere. We have thus herein attempted the fulfilment of the promise with which we began to produce a history of ink, a thing never done before or even proposed to be done. If not successful in our attempt, we hope that we have at least in this little book furnished hints and suggestions on this subject, which the learned may employ hereafter when the history of this important material of history shall be undertaken and executed on a larger scale. In view of which possibility we may, with a pardonable self say in the words of Martin Luther, we have given to other and higher spirits occasion to reflect. But, here we go, we are loath to leave this subject, which has grown into our affections as we have dwelt upon it, without giving a blow or a kick to one monstrous absurdity, which has prevailed among the learned, falsely so-called, from the time when the Pursuits returned from China with their edifying and curious tales about the huge antiquity of all the arts and some of the sciences of civilization among the people of what they called the Celestial Empire, a term wholly unknown to the Chinese in any form or variation of expression. Here we go. The simple facts are that the Chinese derived their knowledge of ink, of writing with a coloured liquid, from Europe so did they obtain their knowledge of the art of printing, carried to them by Venetian travellers overland, just at the moment before the clumsy engraved woodblocks were supersided by the movable types of Gannisflesh or Gutenberg. So it was with the mariner's compass, the manufacture of gunpowder, and all of their boasted inventions, it gets better and better, a one which may be included, their calculation of eclipses, backward, backward through fabulous cycles of centuries, and the morals of Confucius or Kong Fu Tsi, a mythical personage unmentioned in the history of China until the contents of the New Testament had been made known there, and that many ages after the date of his supposed life and death. I've nearly finished, James. Bear with me. But for their derivation and appropriation of theft, 
of the great arts from the West, the Chinese and all Oriental nations from the Euphrates to the Pacific, including the Japanese, would have remained to this day in the condition in which the Mexicans and Peruvians were found by the Spanish and Italian robbers who first explored the Western Hemisphere and murdered its inhabitants for their land and the fruits and the gold and silver of that land. Whatever arts the Chinese or Japanese or Jesuits may have invented or preserved, the art of telling the truth is evidently to all of them one of the lost arts, lost irretrievably and forever. <laughs> wow! <laughs> wow, 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 wow. So, um... I, I think that needs debunking. <laughs> what What is going on there? So, um, well, there are a couple of really interesting things here. First of all, everything uh, we need to say as historians, everything that's just been said there is not true. Okay, so he's he's ranting and raving about claiming that the, the Chinese didn't invent this, that and the other, everything he listed. Um, I, I, personally, I've recently well uh, made a... a, a TV documentary for the BBC called The Silk Road, in which I argue the exact opposite, explaining just how the Chinese did invent all of these wonderful things and that they came to the West from the East. But so there's there's he he's he's uh, he's pretty cross, this guy. And um, it's worth thinking about what he's doing in the 1860s. Right. And there's a growing sense of Sinophobia in China at this period. It actually leads to something called the Chinese Exclusion Act, where the Chinese are not actually allowed to come into America. There's great fear in America that the Chinese are stealing American jobs, that they work harder than the Americans. Um, and there's a, there's a real wave spreading right across the states um, intense fear and concern that there is an unstoppable wave of of Chinese immigrants coming in and stealing everyone's jobs. And um, I think Thaddeus Davids here is uh, demonstrating some of that sinophobia, but also applying it to all sorts of other things as well. I'd urge you to go back and listen to me read it again, because it's a truly, truly staggering piece of writing and so surprising at the end of a book, which is otherwise very contained and um, and really focused on ink rather than uh, hatred of other people's. <laughs> what do you think there's of that, James? A, a, excellent, Sam. Excellent. And there's such a resonance 150 years later. Isn't it? Um, this, this podcast on ink is turning out to be a reflection on the state of America and presidential politics uh, at the moment, I think. It, it's extraordinary. And I've got a, a little bit uh, later on uh, where I'm going to talk about graphology. Um, but what I want to talk about now is picking up on what you were saying there. Um, well, there's one there's one sort of basic point that I want to make. It's one of the reasons that we are able to know so much about history is literally because of the invention of ink. And the fact that ink survives, in other words, that documentary evidence survives, means that we have the raw materials that historians look at in order to turn them into written histories. So I think that's one of the sort of very you know, basic facts that we're talking about here. I mean, you could also say that about paper and parchment and and all of those sort of things. Um, but what I want to talk about um, now is some of to pick up on one of some of the things that were coming out of that about the different types of ink that there are and to sort of talk about ink across time and how ink has changed. So a sort of history of ink. Um, and I've talked about the, the way in which we might trace this from, you know, from sort of, cave paintings and um, ink being used to put 
pictures uh, on walls or, or handprints, as in our chapter on the history of the hand in our in our big book, Histories of the Unexpected, uh, all the way through to ink today. And we think about ink in our own personal printers uh, and inkjet cartridges. Um, what I want to start with is um, is ink from the Mayan uh, civilization. So the Mayans were uh, people who lived in um, Mesoamerica uh, from about four and a half thousand years ago until the 16th century Spanish conquistadors conquered uh, Mexico. And they had their own particular kind of ink, which was known as Maya Blue, uh, which is a sort of um, an indigo ink. Uh, that actually is very, very good and has endured in the archaeological uh, record for centuries. Um, and it's also been used in interesting ways to authenticate a recent discovery of a Grolier Codex, um, which is a which was found in the 21st century and is a, an early manuscript from that period now when these kinds of things are discovered they're often um you know they're often looked at really sort of suspiciously um there was very little provenance for it um but actually when the scientists got hold of it and did a chemical analysis of the ink they found that it actually contained this mayor blue ink and matched it to other codices and artifacts that were related to the Maya people. So there is then a sense that, you know, that this particular ink that can be dated to a particular people in a particular part of the world at a particular part of time has a way of authenticating manuscripts nowadays. And we can compare this to Chinese ink, which again is, is very different from this. And Chinese ink is a, has been used for thousands of years and is a is also known as india ink and is a carbon-based ink and it's very very dark black and it's particularly glossy and the interesting thing about chinese ink is that it's not supposed to be stored in its liquefied form so you don't carry it around as a liquid instead you carry it around in a solid form so in a solid block and the way in which you the way in which you reliquify it is that you grind, um, a you take the block and you grind a little bit of fine dust off, uh, and then you add water to it, and that water then allows you to liquefy the ink, and then you can you can use it for calligraphy or painting or or whatever. Um, that's third type of ink, and this is the type of ink that's prevalent throughout the medieval world through into the 19th century is a an ink called iron gall ink and if you're working on medieval 16th 17th 18th century manuscripts this is predominantly the kind of ink that you will find and the earliest known recipe can be traced back to the classical world uh, and a recipe can be found in pliny and now iron gall ink is made of four different ingredients. And the main ingredient is gall nuts. And these gall nuts are a, are a growth on oak trees. And they are produced in response to insects that are hatching 
uh, on the oak tree. So you collect those, you mix it with iron sulfate, uh, which is a byproduct of alum manufacturing, and you mix that with gum arabic and water. Uh, some some recipes think that you should add other ingredients to it, such as honey or pomegranate rinds or, or sugar. Um, the problem with this is that it is really, really corrosive. In other words, it doesn't survive the test of time in many cases. And there is a great deal of iron gall ink deterioration in manuscripts. And this happens when it oxidizes in the air, uh, forming ferric tannate, which turns brown, and it literally burns through the paper. And in various ways, it can either, there's a, there's a, it either burns through leaving holes, or it can lead to something called haloing, which is when a light brown halo uh, spreads out from the inked area across the the manuscript. And the other form of corrosion is lacing, which is when the areas that are inked become so brittle and weak that they simply crack and and disintegrate. So you're literally left with huge holes in the manuscripts. So we shouldn't just think that ink is is stable and that survives. And I want to talk to you about a final uh, form of ink. Uh, so we've talked about uh, we've talked about Mayan ink, we've talked about Chinese ink, we've talked about iron gall ink, and I want to talk about a fourth kind of ink, which is printing ink. Now this is a kind of ink that came about because of the introduction of the printing press in Europe in the 1440s, and what was needed was a new kind of ink that would stick to the metal, the new metal presses. Um, and what you have is a smooth, very even black ink. It's very different from the kinds of ink that we've had for use with writing implements. So we have that uh, invented um, and this leads to the spread of printed books uh, across Europe, eventually across the world. The final form of ink and we've already talked about voting ink. The final form of ink, which I've mentioned, is the inkjet cartridges, uh, which we see introduced in uh, the 2000s. Um, and these are these are ubiquitous. They are everywhere. The problem with them, though, is that the ink isn't great ink. And any of you who've done some printing uh, and then looked at it a few years later, you will know that it fades really, really quickly. When we started out doing the Histories of the Unexpected podcast, I used to print out all our notes and reading, and I've got them all filed in a, in a plastic, couple of plastic boxes, great big plastic boxes, as a sort of archive of the podcast. And looking back through them, much of those pages, many of those pages have in fact faded over time. The other problem with ink for inkjet printers is that it is incredibly expensive. And you are, you know, it's it's incredibly expensive. You are paying quite a high price for a small amount of printing coming out. And in 2007, there was actually a class action lawsuit 
against Hewlett-Packard because if any of you have used your printers and you see uh, this um, instruction warning you that the printer level is running low, this actually was proved to be coming in much earlier than necessary. So people were actually being encouraged to buy new ink cartridges before the ink had run out. And Hewlett-Packard were taken to court uh, over this. So there we are. There's a sort of little trot through a whole range of different kinds of inks from the Mayan civilization through Chinese ink, uh, through the iron gall ink, which is the ink that is used by, you know, throughout the medieval and early modern period, to printing ink, uh, which has its own unique and interesting history, all the way through to printing today and voting ink. So ink has this extraordinarily varied history. Well, that seems a really good place for us to stop. We've given you an introduction to all sorts of things, that there are creative ways to think about the history of ink, that voting ink is important in uh, in elections and a voter fraud. We've given you a little taster of the historiography of the history of ink, and I think that's opened up a real window into Sino-American relations in the 1860s. And then James has given us um, that lovely introduction to various types of ink. I suspect that you'll realise that from here, we can go all over the place into the past to really open up uh, open up this history of ink and that's what we're going to be doing in the next podcast coming soon so do please get back in touch uh, and listen to that when it comes out i hope you've enjoyed listening to this uh, we very much enjoyed researching it do please follow me on twitter i'm at dr sam willis and please if you're interested in maritime and naval history check out the mariner's mirror podcast and you can follow me at james Dable, and you can follow this podcast on at unexpected pod we're doing loads of things uh, at the moment online. Uh, so check out our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. And because we are so near Christmas, check out the signed books page. We have a big book and we have four little series books that are brilliant for stocking fillers. <laughs> we, we're looking forward to signing those. I'll get some fancy ink to do so. Thank you all very much for listening, guys. We'll be back with you soon. Bye. Take care. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 